ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director here at EAA and one of your hosts. Across the table is... I'm Chris Henry, the Museum Manager. And back for another episode. Tom, good to be hanging out back here again. Uh, Getting ready to talk uh, naval aviation today. Uh, You never know what's going to be coming across the desk here on The Green Dot. So... Um, but we're going to talk naval aviation and a little bit of Hollywood, too, which is pretty fun. Uh, so today uh, we have Margaret Strabla Cole, and uh, she, a uh, U.S. naval aviator, and served on one of my airplanes. It's actually one of my favorite airplanes. It's just not, not one that gets a lot of uh, Hollywood time, and that's the, the, the Hawkeye. Uh, sort of like a, a naval equivalent of uh, Air Force AWACS. So uh, I always thought they were really cool. Uh, Maggie, thank you for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, awesome. So my favorite question to ask everybody, uh, anybody that listens to this knows, you know, what first what first really got you excited to want to go and, and fly and be in the Navy? So I will say um, love of aviation is in my blood. I'm third generation naval aviator. So my dad was a helicopter pilot in the Navy. His dad was a jet pilot during um, the 50s and early 60s. And so great respect for it. Didn't expect myself to fall into it, but I fell in love and I'm so grateful. I grew up in Coronado, California, so heavy Navy town. So it was surrounded um, growing up. Oh, that is cool. Now, is it, was 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 the Hawkeye one of your first sort of choices? Was it something you were interested in, or was there another route you wanted to go? Like, how did you end up there? So, I will say it eventually became my first choice. When I started flight school, I was just so excited to be there in Pensacola, Florida, and uh, going through it. I think every um, kid going through flight school has this moment of you know seeing the original Top Gun or just seeing how fast and beautiful Hornets are. And so for about a solid week, I definitely was like, I, I want to go jets. That sounds great. And then I did formation flights and I puked my brains out. And I decided, <laughs> you know what? Uh, this is maybe not the best path for me. So uh, looking at other options uh, in my pipeline, I really wanted the carrier aviation experience, you know, join the Navy, see the world, be on an aircraft carrier. And the mission of the Hawkeye, where I was kind of the um, project planner in the back, very much appealed to me. So Hawkeyes, um, as I became more educated about the options for me, were my first choice. Well, so as we're talking about this airframe, uh, let's talk a little bit about it. Can you can you tell me about, uh, for those who maybe don't know, what is an E-2 Hawkeye? Yes. Yeah, so it's the radar plane. It looks very dorky on um, a flight deck. It has a big dome and two propellers. You have a crew of five officers, two pilots, and three naval flight officers in the back. And uh, I was one of the three in the back, and we're basically command and control for the strike group. So you have the carrier, you have all of the aircraft on top of the carrier, and then we call them the small boys, but all the ships that support the carrier strike group. So we are the eyes and ears, early warning for the strike group, and then depending on what area of operation you're in, working with combatant commanders all over the globe. So we, we were talking, just just before uh, we got into the uh, where, where you ended up in, in, the, in the Navy flying the Hawkeye, uh, we were talking about flight training, and we've had a lot of 
of pilots of both Air Force and Navy on the uh, on the show, but I can't remember too many NFOs we've had on. So could you describe that training track a little bit? How did you, how, how training-wise did you end up in the Hawkeye? Yeah, so um, we all start out together, at least for naval aviation. You go through API, which is your pre-indoctrination for about six weeks. And then once you graduate that school, that's when pilots and NFOs split off. So I went through primary, which it was a little bit ago. Um, so I'm trying to remember all my exact months, but I would say primary took me anywhere from six to nine months. And then um, at that point, you find out if you're going to be maritime, so your P3s or your land-based aircraft, or if you're going to continue into um, carrier aviation. And I continued into carrier aviation. From there, um, I went to intermediate. So now think of like a year of flight school, um, went to SEER school, and then you show up to your fleet replacement squadron, which is you've been selected for a specific aircraft platform, and now you're going to be trained in that. And that school for me, for the Hawkeyes, was a little over a year. So altogether, two years and change of flight school to be um, ready to fly and qualified in NATOPS for the Hawkeye. Got it. Got it. So I'd imagine, you know, doing the, doing the very complex tasks in the, uh, in, in the back of an E3, um, how much of the training syllabus is uh, airborne in different platforms? And, um, and you know, is, do you, did you do more or less, um, you know, flying versus uh, simulator versus some of the other uh, airframes in the Navy? I would say for Hawkeye specifically, it was heavy on the simulators. Um, the simulators are really complex and um, well mirror what you see in the aircraft. Um, so it was heavy simulator syllabus going through flight school, just to make sure they could throw the whole book at you and also do complex mission sets. Because for the type of missions that the Hawkeye is involved in, a lot of other players are also airborne at that time. And due to resources and the ability to kind of practice that in flight school, you need the simulator in order to fully understand the picture and the tactical points for instruction, if that makes sense. No, no, absolutely. It does. I mean, of course, uh, you also have to know, I guess at some point you got to learn how to do it in turbulence, right? But uh... <laughs> yes. And sideways. So that's the other thing. Uh, for the Hawkeye, you face forward for takeoff and landing, but you swivel sideways for your computer. So you are um, facing you know, perpendicular to the direction of flight that's going. So there's a little bit of body uh, adjustments that you have to make, especially during a turn or if you're in a climb, uh, learning how to stabilize yourself, if you will. Got it. Uh, so with your training track, when did, when did you first have your first arrested landing and catch shot? Was that when you uh, went to the FRC? So um, FRC was a shore tour. So I did it before at my JO tour. But when I showed up, I was one of the first 10 students to go through the new E2D Hawkeye platform flight school class. So the Navy bought a fancy new airplane. And I was one of the first kids to be qualified in it. So when I showed up to my squadron, we had no planes, which is unusual for an aviation squadron. Um, and so I went through an entire workup syllabus for that squadron. So I was actually decently senior and what we call the mission command. I had my mission commander qual by the time I went on my first carrier and did my first trap. So I had the new guy who had been there for 
less than three months and me who was qualified and we were both in the same boat that we had uh, never taken a trap before. Now, in the back of an E2, do you have any way to have any kind of situational awareness at all? Is like, is there a window back there? Um, there is a por- there are three portholes. Okay, but uh, they are mostly blocked by a huge engine and wing, so very little awareness of where are we besides some navigation displays that are very limited. So you put uh, a lot of faith in your pilots. Yeah, I think not knowing exactly when you're about to uh, hit the deck would probably make me puke, but I don't know. (laughs) And I have many times. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Well, you know, what was your first impression when you found out you were going to go to the E2, you know, and you first go out and you see this thing? Um, I mean, it's a pretty massive airplane. Uh, What was your first kind of impression of it? Uh, Dorky. Um, (laughs) It is uh, a hard... It's not the sexiest of aircraft. I'll give it that. Um, It is very capable. But um, on the aircraft carrier, we're kind of referred to as the fat kids because we're slow and huge and we get in everyone's way. And they're always like, just park that thing in the back. So I would say first impression, um, not the most desirable airframe. And now they have uh, aerial refueling. So it's like a a unicorn-like airframe now so it just more excuses to kind of be picked on if you will among the air wing <laughs> uh, so i have to ask you about um you know the you know what was what was a day-to-day mission like like what what did you what did it look like for you guys flying yeah so it um it changed based on where you were and what you were supporting so the e2 is command and control like i mentioned but also the jack of all trades master of none so whatever the daily intentions were of the combatant commanders we were assigned to support so we worked with helicopters we worked with ships to hunt surface tracks we worked with um jets to do air intercept control and strikes um and defense counter air and all of these fun things. So our role was just to know what everyone else was doing and then facilitate in certain ways based on commander's guidance of the day. Very vague answer to your question. No, no, no. That, we uh, had our hands in a lot of different <laughs> areas. Well, and so like what is a um, – I'm trying to think how I can ask this. But so like what is like the length of a typical like duty uh, for you, a duty day? Like like how long, like how long are you in the air roughly? Too long, uh, according to me. Um, So I will say most missions were probably, when I was on deployment, um, you were based and kind of locked around when um, was your cycle for takeoff and landing. Um, So how many cycles you were airborne depended on like the length of that with the airplane. But I would say on average, somewhere between two to four, depending on what your assignments were of the day. That being said, I did a Middle Eastern deployment to um, flying over Iraq and um, supporting operations in Syria. And those flights stretched 11-ish hours because we would take off, go get gas, support our airborne command and control, get gas again, and then go back to the ship. So uh, very long days in that regard. And that doesn't even, that's just flight time, not, incru- not including mission planning, your briefs with you, your briefs with your fighter elements, and then a debrief. And how many E-2s are typically deployed with a carrier? It can't be that many. 
Uh, five um, per squadron with like the E2Ds. Oh, okay. That's actually more than I thought it was. So like versus some of the other um, airframes on the air, on, on the carrier, are you flying more um, than they are just because you have fewer airframes to cover the mission? Yeah, it. I think it depends on like how or how you quantify flying more. I would say our event numbers are smaller compared to like looking at a fighter squadron because they have, I think, don't quote me on this, but I believe they're assigned 12-ish airframes. So their lines are a lot more um, compared to ours. Um, and also we have a lot more gas than they do. So. Huh, got it. So, you know, one of the things, I, there's many things that Top Gun Maverick um, is going to be famous for. I mean, it's 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 an amazing movie. But I think one of the things that was really cool about it is it really showed how a mission would kind of work, and you know, and it, and it actually did showcase the Hawkeye. And uh, uh, for those who maybe don't know, uh, maybe we're giving it away. Uh, you had a role. Uh, you played yourself in the movie, correct? That is correct. So, can you tell us like how that came about? Yeah, so I was um, stationed at FRC Southwest, which was a big depot uh, based in Coronado, California, so greater San Diego. And for the movie, um, they had reached out to us because our role was to overhaul aircraft that were due for plane maintenance inspections. So I was part of the crew that would accept an aircraft, do a functional check flight, evaluate the systems, and then be the liaison while we ripped it apart evaluated it, repaired everything, put it back together. And then I would also fly it on the back end and deliver it back to the fleet. So because of that, we had a lot of spare aircraft laying around um, that Hollywood and Paramount were very interested in using. So we had helped them as a command previously. So if you see the, um, I think that was like the first promo where Tom Cruise is racing a motorcycle against an F-18. Yeah. If you're familiar oh, yeah. with that scene. Oh, yeah. So those are two of my buddies that were um, F-18 pilots, also stationed at FRC, flying an FRC plane, racing him. So they had done that probably at least six months before I ended up um, filming my scene. But long story short, uh, there was uh, planned filming in San Diego. An aircraft carrier broke. So the director of the film crew, everyone was there. And they're like, hey, we can't do our scenes uh, FRC, do you have any spare Hawkeyes laying around? And uh, their POC was like, yeah, we do. And the scene that you're filming, we actually have someone who does that in real life, just by the way. And so uh, we organized getting a plane over there for their filming. And my role was just to babysit the plane. It had showed up maybe like 48 hours before from the fleet and we had to fly it like two days later. <laughs> So I just wanted to make sure, or my role was to make sure we got all the thought out, that they weren't unplugging and moving things, and just to make sure the aircraft was safe so we could go fly it two days later. So that's how it started. And then um, I was asked, uh, just talking to the crew about like what I did and what the role you know meant for the script. And then it turned into the director asking me to read a few lines. And I said, sure. And he liked how I sounded. So he said, get in hair and makeup and let's get you mic'd up. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so and so for those that don't know uh, who watched the movie, uh, is, is it your call sign like Comanche? It is. I will caveat that that is not an actual um, Hawkeye call sign. We made recommendations, but that's the Hollywood movie magic for it. 
that no worries, no worries. And so when you're filming, like, was that actually in uh, in an E2 or was that a set that they were using? It was uh, filmed in a real fleet E2. That is super cool. Yeah. <laughs> a real fleet E2 with, you know, an actual crew member on board. Uh, that is really, really cool stuff. Yeah. And, I, and I've I've watched like a, a number of like, you know, those those videos you'll see on YouTube, like real fighter pilots break down Top Gun. And every single one of them, when they get to the Hawkeye scene, they're like, dude, that's a real call. You know, like, <laughs> like they, they were really impressed with the dialogue. Did you have input to that or was that already in the script? Um, so it was in the script. I will say that there were Navy advisors. So there were two scripts that we read, the the Navy's version of, okay, this is what we would actually say in accordance with Top Gun Stan. Because, um, you know, with aviation, your radio voice is imperative um, in being precise and concise in how you speak. So we have a whole different language when you are doing air intercept controls and strikes that were shown in the movie. So we filmed one that was in accordance with Top Gun stand of what actually happens in real life. And the director was like, hey, guys, that's great. Navy, that's fantastic what you do. The audience is not going to know what you're saying. <laughs> so we filmed one version that was Navy Top Gun stand. And then the other was Hollywood Magic. And shockingly, what made the cut was ho- uh, the Hollywood Magic one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fair enough, fair enough. Now, I, I have to ask, like, I take it you probably saw the movie in the theater, right? Yes, I did. Okay. Was it kind of surreal seeing yourself in the movie? So it was. It was a surprise just based on with COVID, everything like slid so much for the release date. So by the time it actually came out, my husband had already uh, gone through Top Gun himself. And he was stationed as an instructor pilot um, at our duty station at NAS Lemoore. So I actually saw it in a, in a movie theater room rented out full of Top Gun pilots. Oh, wow. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. like the coolest way to see it. So. <laughs> it was very cool. So no one's the coolest in the room when they all have the same patch. But um, I like to think I gave my husband a little bit of street cred that I, out of everyone, I was the one that was actually on screen. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'd say that. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> that is too cool. I mean, and it has to be a big honor because you know, we were talking about this earlier, the ripples that the first Top Gun created on the history of aviation are still being felt. I mean, when you go back and look at statistically the amount of people that both enlisted in the Navy and general aviation pilots in 1985, there's a spike and everybody knows why. Uh, yeah. It's Top Gun. And Top Gun Maverick, you know, you're you're very rarely ever going to see a movie film that way with with you know, real, the actors and actresses in real aircraft. And, you know, you just don't get that, you know, it's always a set or green screen kind of stuff to have the authentic hardware and people. I mean, I I think that's, what's really going to set that movie apart forever. Yeah, they did. It is such a love letter to aviation in general, in my opinion, because that was the big push that um, they shared with those of us that were active duty while they were filming is that, you know, we needed to wait for the technology to be there and then everything that you see flying wise is real. The Hawkeye we were on the ground, full disclosure, um, <laughs> in a hangar. Uh, the cameraman was set up in the aft equipment, and I was in my actual seat wearing my actual gear with the director squeezed right next to me. So that part was authentic. But all of the aerial shots that you see flying, that was all real. And the... Um, Aerial coordinators did such a fantastic job capturing that. 
Yeah, I think the original Top Gun was, go- I mean, very good for its time, but it it it, yeah. it is kind of like uh, I don't know, it's kind of like Star Wars with Tomcats. Hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> all the interiors are on a set, you know, things like that. And and this really did. Um, I've, I've certainly never flown an F eighteen, but it really it it did feel very real. Uh, the movie. Yeah, and I will say everyone that I've talked to, um, my husband included, that they did a really great job accurately portraying not only um, using real visuals, but like the G-forces that you feel that was a new element that they hadn't really shown in the previous movie. Um, And a couple of our friends were stunt pilots for it. So you... If you watch like any of the behind the scenes stuff, you can see all of the actors like undergoing G's and they did a a pretty decent job capturing that because it was real life experience. I think what uh, was special about that film as well uh, is I remember when we went to see it in a theater uh, opening night and the last like. I would say good half hour of the movie, your 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 hands are dug into your seat like. I mean, I just remember at the end of I was exhausted at the end of the movie because it was like I had flown the mission um, because the whole buildup of the briefing on the carrier, you know, the departure, you know, your scene where you're giving them information about flying in and the target uh, and, you know, obviously the ensuing, you know, attack and dogfights. And I mean, you, you just felt like at the end of it, I just remember like there was actually like sweat on the palms of my hands um, that you were just it was intense. Like I had never experienced a movie like that ever. Uh, hands down. Full disclosure, this is Chris nerding out. Um, but it's true. I, I mean, there is, I've never, Tom, do you, do you remember a movie that you've seen that you had that much just emotion? And let, let's not forget, and I'm, I am totally fanning out here, but <laughs> that opening where they just go back to the original, you know, opening of Top, that was iconic. I mean, that was just so cool. But, uh, you know, Tom, I mean, you, you went to the theater to see it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think from start to finish, it was um, it, it was a very well-put-together movie. I mean, it was a movie that didn't try to do too much. Um, I think a lot of, um, uh, you know, that, that's something that I think Hollywood gets into a lot with sequels is, um, you know, they try to they try to build too much on the original, whereas, um, you know, and I think a lot of people were worried about that going into a sequel for Top Gun, but I think they did a very, very good job uh, pulling off um, a movie that, I mean, completely stands up on its own. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and you know, I think it's, uh, and Maggie, you know, maybe maybe that's something that you would, you would chime in on. Um, you know, the first Top Gun felt very much you know, you were watching the pilots and, and of course that's, you know, I mean, that, that's what's, what's interesting for a lot of folks. And this one felt more like they called out the fact that everything that happens in the military and the naval aviation is a team. Uh, And I thought that they shined a light on that a lot better in this one. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it was awesome that the Hawkeye was able to be present. um, Cause I would say that if you like think about naval aviation and whatnot, the Hawkeye is not the image that comes to mind, right? It's usually a Hornet um, flying fast over the carrier and breaking and breaking the speed of sound and whatnot. So I completely agree that it was really nice to see like the teamwork aspect um, and the composition in the second movie. Yeah, no, it, it definitely was. Although it, it, a lot of people laugh about the, uh, I mean, people who are familiar with uh, the way the military actually works about the, the Hondo character, how he's the flight <laughs> test engineer, crew yeah. chief, um, oh, yeah. man of many talents, rigs the barricade on the deck, is in the uh, yeah. 
Yeah. So I became a fan of the Hawkeye through a different uh, source of video. And that was back in the day, there was a squadron called VAW-113. And they did these amazing YouTube videos of like out on an aircraft carrier, music videos, uh, move along is one of the ones they did. It like it was they're hilarious. So if you ever are, uh, Black Eagles. yeah, exactly the Black Eagles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool squadron. Like we actually wrote them and they sent us a whole bunch of patches <laughs> and stuff. Really, really, really cool unit. But uh, but if you ever anybody that wants to go look at what uh, a Hawkeye is, of course you can go Google and things like that to look at one. But uh, um, <laughs> you know, but if you happen to stumble into VAW 113's YouTube videos, they're they're pretty hilarious. So, nice. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so when do, so so you currently are retired from the Navy, right? Yeah. So I um, separated is like the specific term. I finished my commitment, so I did ROTC in uh, college at Boston University, and then with flight school, if you go the NFO path, um, six years from earning your wings of gold, um, you are eligible for, hey, are you going to stay in or get out? And so I finished my full commitment um, before transferring to the private sector. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. How long total were you in? So it was about eight years and change um, of active duty and then the four years of uh, pretend Navy when you are um, (laughs) a midshipman is the rank, if you will, uh, that you are in the four years of college on the scholarship. Wow. So, okay. Two questions I have to ask you. Is it weird being in the back and how, uh, for, for a cat shot, how violent is that in the back of a, of an E2? So I will say for the cat shot, it's the best roller coaster in the world. And I will not experience that again, unfortunately, but to take an arrested landing, it is the most violent of car crashes. So it's, you know, opposite ends of the experience for sure. Yeah, that, I know we touched on it earlier. That has to be so weird to be in the back for that. You know, you, at least in the cockpit, you know, of like a of an F eighteen or something, you can kind of maybe brace a little bit or prepare for it a little bit more. Yeah, no, you're just watching altitude tick down, and take in mind that there's like an air with it, so you're not exactly. And at night, uh, you don't see anything, so you're just <laughs> like waiting and waiting, and then you land. Um, and you hold your breath of like, did we bolter? Are we going to go around and have to do that again? Or are we are we stuck? <laughs> or, you know, worst case scenario. So anytime a Hawkeye lands on the carrier, there's a um, overhead hatch that the, the uh, naval flight officer who's sitting in the last seat closest to the tail takes out before landing. Because if, God forbid, something happens, that's our escape route, right? We don't have ejection seats in the Hawkeye. Mm. So you're listening to the wind and just kind of going like, uh, what's going on? Am I, am I safe? Did I make it home for the night? Are we gonna have to do that again? God forbid. And my poor back. And meanwhile, (laughs) you know, where's my flight, my helmet bag, did it move? What, what changed in the violent car crash? Um, or do I need to get the hell out of this place? (laughs) It's funny. You mentioned at night, uh, one of our friends, Megan, uh, flew uh, F-18s and Tomcats, uh, said whoever uh, uh, thought of flying uh, missions at night off of an aircraft carrier really sucks. <laughs> her, uh, her, her comment. <laughs> I, yeah, I am not envious of those. I don't know if it's better to like just close your eyes and wish or have the control to be like, no, I, my efforts will make sure we get home safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I, I yeah, I was I was asking earlier about about uh, taking the uh, the the rest landings for just that reason. Yeah, um, I, I, it's kind of ironic, but you know, as a pilot, I'm actually a pretty nervous airline passenger. I'm one of those people who has to have the shade up and is glued to you know looking for the yeah. runway, looking outside. Where are we right now? All that I cannot imagine a not being able to see and b we're not just landing on a runway. We're uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 on a runway that's moving. You yeah, know. yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask is, is there a certain mission or a certain time you went out that stands out, uh, for you? Is there a special mission that kind of just stands above the rest for you? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, deployment is always kind of like the pinnacle of what you've worked for, for so long. So I would say, uh, my deployment to the Middle East was very memorable in that regard. We did 20 flights into Iraq that were um, considered like combat time due to the ongoing operation, um, which was stressful. When I showed up to the theater, uh, timeline wise, there was the shoot down of the um, Syrian aircraft had just happened the month before in 2017. Mm -hmm. So tensions were high and just um, that situation gave gravity to the fact of, you know, this is a very serious arena. and every single person who's entering it needs to have everything locked down and their knowledge tight for ROE and what's happening operationally. So while not like a specific flight, that entire deployment and specifically the period in the Middle East was very eye-opening and um, memorable in that regard. You know, when you mentioned the shoot down, that just dawned on me, you were doing deconfliction with, uh, with, with, with Russian operations over there too, right? Yeah, it was... Um, Lots of people in a very small amount of space. So just making sure that you're where you are, where you're supposed to be, and that you're following the rules yeah. and prepare to act if rules aren't followed. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's unreal. Uh, what, you know, was it mainly Hornets uh, that you were sort of controlling or was, was there a lot of other types of aircraft that you were responsible for? Yeah. So depending on the mission set, I would say our primary customer, if you will, um, were Hornets. Um, growlers were also tied in there. And then, um, that was for like our air to air and our air to surface, um, mission sets, which dominate what we, um, did at least on deployment, but then we'll work with helicopters, um, and ships to identify surface contacts. The dynamic, more stressful, more fun ones were definitely the ones with the Hornets. Um, my husband, uh, needs to make sure I say that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to ask. Um, so, if you're in a if you're in a theater like um, you know, like Iraq or Syria, um, where there's also um, Air Force assets flying around, like you know, E3s, um, how does that breakdown work? Are you are you ever going cross service? Um, yes, uh, it just depends on what the combatant commander has assigned you to. So, we're all just resources at the end of the day that fit different. Um, wickets. And so we say our goals and our capabilities and uh, the amount of coverage time we can have to support. Um, and then they assign us at random. So I spent, I think it was about like two weeks in Kuwait um, at the like headquarters for um, Fifth Fleet. And it was really great to see behind the scenes, not only like all of our uh, friendly countries, but other um AEW early warning platforms like the AWACS and meeting other countries that have similar um, platforms like the Wedgetail. Uh, so that was really cool to see. I would say in the spectrum of airborne command and control, 
don't quote me on this, but I believe the Hawkeye has the smallest of crews um, just due to like airframe restrictions. Yeah, makes sense. Sure. You know, I have a quite one question. This is probably a really nerdy question, but I'll ask, you know, the, the airplane is pretty big. Does it fit in the hangar bay? Um, on a carrier? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Oh, okay. well, as long as, um, gosh, I'm blanking on the Navy term. It's been, um, six years since I've been on a carrier, but I think it's what the, the handler, the boss, are there any Navy folks potentially to help I've, me? Um, I've seen Top Gun several times if that helps. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, tr- I don't want to, um, misspeak, but I believe it's the handler who is in charge of basically moving everyone on the Ouija board of, you know, are they on the flight deck or are they on the hangar bay below? So yes, you can fill multiple ones, but it depends, um, on how Handler wants configuration. So one question I always love to ask everybody, uh, I have two, it's like a bookend, you know, I always get to ask like, what gets you excited about airplanes? Um, but the second is, you know, for young people listening, what advice might you give them um, just in general? And then if, if they want to follow your track and uh, do what you did in the Navy? Yeah, so I'd say for advice in general, if something is inspires you and you're passionate about it, give it a shot. Because I, if you would have asked 15, 16, 17 year old me, uh, how my life has turned out in terms of career wise, I would have been like, no, that's not, that's not Maggie. Um, (laughs) but giving way to experiencing new opportunities and opening up yourself to try it. And if it works out, pursue it. If it doesn't, then you pivot. But, um, I have very supportive parents and I'm very grateful for my mother for um, opening up the door to ROTC. I am the oldest of four kids and I got into school and she was like, we are so proud of you. You are also the oldest of four children. Um, And we have lots of expensive college bills coming after you. Let's look at a scholarship. My dad had done UCLA ROTC and had heard about the program and um, I can thank my mother as a great jumpstart for me. Cause she said, try it out. If you don't like it, we'll figure something else out. But through the ROTC experience, I'm like, oh, this is actually really fun and not something I would have ever given myself. Um, if you would ask me when I was 10 years old, uh, what I wanted to do. Uh, my husband has always known he's wanted to fly jets since he was 10. But um, yeah, I just think opening up to new opportunities in a long when way in believing in yourself and putting your hat in the ring for the first part. And then uh, I went on a little bit of a rant. You'll have to remind me of your second question, if you don't mind. Oh, just what would be the advice for someone maybe wanting to get in to do what you did in the Navy? Yeah. So um, college was a great um, opening door. So there's service academies. My husband went to the Naval Academy. So that's one way if you want a very structured uh, college life. Um, ROTC, which is Reserve Officer Training Corps, is a great way to have college um, tuition paid for, uh, but still have a normal college experience and some freedoms that the Naval Academy doesn't allow um, due to their structure. So scholarships are great through ROTC. If uh, you've already gone to college and you're interested in aviation through the military, there's officer candidate schools to um, apply to through a recruiter. Well, thank you very much, Maggie. Sound advice. Well, thanks so much for being with us. This has been uh, one of the most fun episodes I think we've done in a long time. Uh, Chris and I both nerded out quite a bit. Oh, this yes. Movie. <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Chris, the offer is still open. If you want a very, very detailed breakdown of the sailing scene in Top Gun, <laughs> just get me on. I'll, I'll be happy to do it. Absolutely. I think I'll stick with Maggie <laughs> yeah, and talking really guys, so. <laughs> Expertise. <laughs> <laughs> and Maggie, again, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with us today. We are going to figure out a time to get you here to speak in the museum uh, so that we can all uh, hang out and talk hot guys throughout the evening. Uh, but again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the invite. I, it was such a pleasure to speak with you both and relive those early glory days of uh, my younger years. And um, I really appreciate the time and the opportunity and hoping to make my way uh, eastbound maybe next summer. Awesome. Hey, sounds like a plan. Well, I hope everybody listening has had as much fun as we have uh, on this uh, on this episode. If you did, please uh, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your, uh, your favorite podcasts. Um, Keep yeah, keep all the reviews coming and keep checking the uh, the, the schedule for our museum speaker series. Chris um, has been working on scheduling uh, scheduling it out through uh, through next year and has put together a fantastic uh, slate. So uh, definitely check that out if you're anywhere uh, reachable to uh, to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, anytime during the year. And with that, thanks again, Maggie. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Rob, and everybody else who makes this show happen. And we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.